Welcome to Comscast Life in Full Duplex, a podcast by ClearCom. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us. My name is Bob Boster, and I'll be your host today on this edition of Comscast Life in Full Duplex. This is an occasional podcast on Intercom, the amazing things empowered by Intercom in a wide variety of applications, and some of the special things in the production world of which we are an important part. This is the second of a two-part series on a groundbreaking production of La Boheme put on outdoors in San Diego in October of 2020. This production was the work of the San Diego Opera and incorporated members of the San Diego Symphony and a lot of creative work from the production team. In part one, we discussed the technical elements of the production with Ross Goldman from EventWave. In this section, we're joined by Mike Janney, who was stage manager for this unique production, to discuss stage management for opera in general, as well as the unique elements of bringing this show to fruition. Where are you? And, and um, sort of tell us about how you got into doing this and, um, and what your sort of uh, career history or path has been. Yeah, sure. I currently live in Somerville, Massachusetts. I lived there a couple of years ago after spending about 10 years in Seattle, although I'm currently in Seattle to be working on the next project. Seattle offers is in these times trying to do some video style projects uh, for them to publish. So I'm glad that there's some work going on. You know, I always joke that, that there's two types of stage managers in the world. There's the ones that came from the performance side and didn't make it as performers or found a different route. Uh, and then there's the one that came from the technical side and sort of found their way backstage that way. And I'm, I'm the former. I was a local major at some point a long time ago. Uh, not anymore and, and found my way backstage and uh, I've loved it ever since. So since then, you know, um, opera stage managers tend to travel in the beginning of their years because you need to um, sort of jump from, from companies company to company to get your start. So I spent a couple of years on the road and then I spent about 10 years at uh, Seattle Opera and uh, now I'm back to freelancing stage managing basically full-time. Spend my summers at Santa Fe Opera these days, which is one of the biggest companies in the in the nation right now. Okay. And do you strictly work in opera or do you work in a variety of different performance mediums? Strictly opera. And have you found that that provides you with, let's say, an area of specialization makes it a little bit easier to find opportunities and and the right kind of thing? Or is it that it's such a small world, it becomes more challenging to find opportunities? I think the first part, it's really, it's small demand, small supply. There aren't many, there aren't that many jobs, but there aren't many of us that, that do it. You know, the first sort of priority that differentiates an opera stage manager early in the career is of course that you have to be able to read the music because we call off of scores instead of scripts. And so that whittles it down um, from the beginning. And it's different than some of the other stage management, from my understanding. You have to be kind of humble because there's a lot of big personalities in the upper world. And you have to be able to work with them all. So. Um, and, and so just for people who are tuned into this who may not necessarily uh, have as much of a familiarity uh, with this as, as uh, Ross and I, both of whom have been in the theater, at least for chunks of our lives, can you just sort of give a high-level overview of what your task is during a production, like w- what you do? Sure, sure. I come on about a week prior to most productions, approximately, to start sort of getting things ready. So I'm basically the in-the-room person for the whole rehearsal process, doing schedules, a communication person between all the different departments. And then myself and, and the stage management team that I have, which is usually at least two assistants, we 
take what we've learned in the rehearsal space and we move it, we help that product move to the stage. And there's usually about a week of time on stage of tech work before you open the show. And that runs, depending on the size of the company, from one weekend to a couple months. And but but a lot of what we do is is, you know, the crew and the people who are actually going to be running the show aren't in the rehearsal room with us. And so our job is to prepare that information through communications and through paperwork so that they know when we hit the stage what they're supposed to do with the show that they've never seen before. Okay. What's your responsibility during the show? And then during the show, it's much like a normal um, stage management position. I, I call all of, I myself call all of the cues, light cues, tech cues, sound cues usually, although often not, well, I'm sure we'll get into this in a little bit, not the microphones themselves, if there are microphones, which is a rare situation. Start the show, run the show, problem solve as things as things go on, normal normal stage management stuff, I and my team. Opera is a little bit different because I have, usually have two assistants and nobody enters the stage in opera without giving without being given a cue. There's a long tradition and a lot of reasons as to why that happens. And so the assistant stage managers are also on score, making sure everyone's there, making sure they all have their stuff and telling them exactly when to enter. So between, between all of us, we basically just make sure everyone's in the right place at the right time. And in a, in a normal production in a theater, um, do you have a specific position that you tend to call cues from physically? I, good question, actually. Um, opera stage managers tend to sit backstage, which I believe is unusual from most of the other stage managers I've met, at least in theater and, and musical theater, where you're more likely to be in a booth. I know dance can go both ways. Um, I've done, I think, only one show ever from a booth position out front I'm almost always backstage and I think that's to be present to, to be available to artists or to admin or to anyone that or, or, or technical folks anyone that needs to come see me or, or any stage manager knows where they are I, that's my best guess as to why that tradition happens although I actually don't know the details mm. how that came to be it is interesting to us on the technical side because the the challenges of setting up a stage manager's position in an area that is often times has a, a fair bit of technical equipment around it can be sometimes challenging. Yeah, you're, you're so right. In some houses, you have a regular spot that you're comfortable in every show and everyone knows where that be. And uh, in some companies, for instance, I, I've worked some at Boston Lyric Opera and they rotate their performances through different venues. And it is always sort of a game of where I will, where they will find room for me, what corner they'll find the room for me to shove me into. In the course of uh, calling a show, what's the relationship between your activities and the conductor? Once the show actually gets running, we have almost no communication besides making sure the conductor gets there and enters. Now then I have uh, a video monitor of the conductor because a lot of the things that I'll be calling are, will be more precise if I can see the conductor's beat. We tend to communicate during the rehearsals, during the dress rehearsals and the technical rehearsals so that the conductor knows when, where we're starting and the score, where we're going back to, to make sure we're ready. But once the show actually gets going, usually there's an emergency line that, that they could reach me on, some kind of channel, if, if for any reason, not would be able to stop. But um, typically once the show gets going, we don't have any reason to communicate directly. And 
obviously you're calling cues from the score and so you're making notations in the score for your own purposes to keeping track of of the cues and where you are does the conductor do the same thing and do you tend to have this let's say visibility or understanding of the same cues or are they really strictly musically driven and you handle all the rest of the action there are occasionally times where a conductor will take their cues off of action that's happening on the stage. For instance, you start when the curtain goes out or you hold this pause until you see this person move this chair over here. But we, we try and keep those as, as minimum as possible. They tend to, it tends to be music driven, almost everything we do. So the, the maestro in general is driving the action that follows or, or, or they're leading and, uh, and we're responding to what they do. And you're responding because they're driving the music and you're mm-hmm. following the music. Mostly, 98% of the time. Okay. It's interesting to think about because I've certainly done the equivalent of those tasks on the, th- on the theatrical side, but imagining doing that while following a score just sounds befuddling. So I'm very, <laughs> impre- I'm very impressed imagining your, your responsibilities. You know, in some ways, it's almost easier because everything is there and um, sort of at regular musical intervals. There's sometimes less guesswork involved. Right. You know where you are because it's notes on a page. And theoretically, everyone's if everyone's doing their jobs, it's all right there. Yeah, that makes sense. It's interesting to think about. In some of our, uh, let's say, more elaborate production uh, environments that we work with at ClearCom, we've started to hear about situations in which you might have multiple stage managers calling cues for a production simultaneously, where, where one might be calling a certain set of disciplines like robotics, for instance, and video projection, and another might be calling cues for traditional sound and lights or what or in whatever kind of pattern or split. Is, has that started to come into opera at all yet? Or is it is it really just the one stage manager driving most of the productions? Uh, that's interesting. Only on an incredibly complicated technical show would you have sort of two stage managers. There's this famous magic flute that came out of Germany a couple of years ago that is entirely run on projections. I mean, projections every second or couple of seconds. And that has basically a, a person who calls specifically those things because it's so intricate. But and I don't want to say that I call everything that happens. For instance, uh, I would probably start a sequence and then the master, uh, if it's a big technical sequence, and then the master carpenter might follow through the series of events that comes from there, you know, depending on how, how intricately they aligned with the, the action of the music. But, you know, as much of that can be sort of run by the people who are doing that is it's for the best. But usually in most situations, you only have one stage manager in 90% or over of shows. Mike, maybe you can talk about the role of the score readers that we had on Bohem. Oh yeah, that's, no, see the Bohem was an entirely different situation because suddenly we had video, uh, a video element and a sound element, which are both unusual to a live opera production. So we had, uh, because because the cars of this uh, OM were could be, the, in, the, the back ones are so far away, we had these videos, and we had video people who were not necessarily opera people, and so San Diego Opera tried to assist them by having some, of course, there's come in 
to help be like, uh, in a moment, this person will be singing, and then they'll end, and this person will sing. So they had their own their own helpers there. Additionally, in the sound world, the, the same thing, because this show, the performance had microphones, which is unusual, of course, in the opera world. There was a floor reader as well who was helping the sound person know which microphones to turn on and off on stage. Fascinating. So you had a number of different people who were sort of, they weren't exactly calling cues that the were on the stage product, but they were in the outcome of what people were either seeing in the video's projection or in terms of uh, how the audio was coming through to them in the mix. You got it. And that comes back to, you know, the music reading skill that is so intricate to opera that you need sort of people. And that was a choice that Sandy, there's some choice that I might have called some of those elements. I might have called some video, I might have called some microphones, depending on the complexity level. I'm certainly happy to not call those if you can have a separate person to come and do those um, um, to relinquish that, you know, to help spread out that. But they decided it would make more sense to have two additional people on book um, helping those departments through this new complicated show. Yeah, that's cool. One thing that I'll add is that having those separate people each call their own department, one for cameras and one for audio, meant that those departments could continue to add more and more detail to those scores about okay, now at this point, we're going to pull this mic back a little bit or push in the uh, zoom in with this camera or whatever. And they could keep adding complexity after each rehearsal without necessarily burdening Mike with a million more cues. It gave a lot of subtlety. And, you know, I will call whatever words, any stage manager will call whatever words you tell me to. We're just putting notations in a score and saying those words. But the more things there are, the less room there is for sort of subtlety or flexibility or or changes or, or helpful details, because then there are more and more things stacked on top of the words I'm trying to say. So it, it is was incredibly helpful to have those people there. That's cool. So I imagine that now at this point in your career, you've worked with a, a large number of the renowned operas as texts. You've, you've kind of been around a lot of the main main productions. Would you say that you're uh, familiarity now with the canon is very strong? I think I've hit most of the major ones. There occasionally there's like a, you know, one in the top 30 or 40 that I haven't done before. And that's always new and exciting. But, you know, certainly the Bohem that we did in San Diego was not my first Bohem. <laughs> and do you find that that's very helpful to you as you work on these productions to have a, a very strong understanding of the texts as you go into it? It certainly can't hurt. There's tricky things in all operas. And if you've done it before, then you sort of know where those where those things will be coming. But not a requirement. And some operas I don't mind doing again. And some operas I'd be happy if I never had to stage manage again. <laughs> I guess that makes sense. That's like everything in life. So I understand that this production was substantially adapted for the runtime and the idea of doing it all straight through in, in one chunk of material. Obviously, I'm familiar that that's quite common in, uh, for instance, in a lot of Shakespeare productions, they'll make substantial modifications to the text. Is that common in opera to make large scale changes like that? It depends on the opera. In some cases, there are sort of standard versions. So let's say 
let's say Mozart wrote this three and a half hour opera, and there are sort of standard cuts that everyone makes to get it down to three hours. There are some purists out there who like conductors who like to do the entirety of the work, every note that was written. So it's sort of a negotiation. And then, and then there are some companies that are more liberal with the cuts based on the situation. It sort of depends on the musicians involved and usually either the general director of the company and the incoming conductor and what they agree on. This bohem, doing a bohem in, in 90 minutes was certainly unusual, uh, I'll say that. And in terms of settings, I'm familiar with Santa Fe Opera, the physical facility there, which is kind of a unique environment to produce in. But have you, previous to this, have you done many operas that were uh, staged outdoors? No, I think only Santa Fe and that's only semi, semi-outdoors. I mean, it's just an open air theater. Yeah, no, everything else has been inside. Wolf Trap Opera, which is a wonderful young artist company over outside of D.C., they have a big pavilion area, um, which is also open air, but only the audience is sort of lawn seating is uncovered from to the elements. So, okay. So nothing like, nothing like this, though. This is unique. So tell me about how this felt to you coming into the project as sort of, I mean, obviously there's sort of the COVID dynamic, but then also just the creative elements of working in a different kind of setting with that many cuts and audience being being in their cars. You know, what did, what did that seem like as you were getting into it or conceptually before you got into the actual rehearsal process? Well, I will admit that I had a lot of reservations about this show going in. All of those things you mentioned, sort of the outdoor element, the FM broadcasting element, the video element, the singers being mic'd, these are all highly unusual for our standard practices. And I have to give a lot of kudos to the administration and the production staff at San Diego Opera because they, I only show up a week or two before the project starts and for weeks and months they had been planning this and getting people like Ross on board to take care of all of these details and everything went I'm incredibly impressed with how well everything went, and that speaks well to how well they plan things and and set things up for success. But um, it was very different, and I had um, you know uh, my concerns going in, and those were all taken care of. So that's great. Is it traditional that you would hire your team of assistants yourself, or would they be brought? Would they be people you'd inherit from the production, you know, as local resources or some and some? Most opera companies, the stage management staff is hired, doesn't come with the production. You might get an assistant director who comes with the production, with the director who knows the show, but almost always the stage managers are are sort of part of the local team or brought in as part of the local team. And that's because oftentimes, because they're the, we are the bridge between the guest artists and the, you know, the local technicians. You want people who are familiar with the systems in place at that company. The more familiarity, the better it's going to be. The more you know the personalities and, and you know, the crew heads and the administrators. Sure. And I guess even the physical. The phys- yeah, the facility makes sense. That, that too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Having having that knowledge is also incredibly helpful. So. And how did that seem to you in terms of the the personnel? Did you have some connections in advance with some of the people involved in this production before coming into it? Or was it a a pretty new group to you? It's about 50-50. I had worked at the company before, so I knew most of the admin. I knew one of my assistants, um, but I didn't know 
many of the creatives, including Ross. Uh, so, and that's usually standard, I would say. I knew um, some of the some of the artists already; others were new to me. To me, it seems like that's an area of sensitivity because of COVID practices and safety concerns and things like that. That you'd want to have at least you know some some familiarity with the seriousness of the organization, which it sounds like you did. But also, did you sort of pre-review what the safety protocols that everyone was imagining were? Or were you party to sort of putting that together in terms of what was going to happen? Because obviously, during the show, you're sort of in charge of that to a, in a real way. How did that, how did that all come together? Uh, we have a COVID safety officer, and certainly the company was thinking about a lot of those questions. So one of my jobs, uh, or the stage management team's job, is to come in and ask all the questions, you know, because we're coming in so late to say, have you thought of this? How are we dealing with this? And in almost all cases, they actually did have an answer, or they were, the company was easily able to to come up with something that, that did work. So I think more than creating the practices, we were the ones who were trying to find the, the holes in it to to plug. And our union also, uh, both of the unions, both the orchestra's union and the opera singer's union, which I'm a part of, also had done a lot of pre-work in terms of defining safety protocols. You know, my union, AGMA, brought in a bunch of um, professional epidemiologists and, and safety folks to really try and lay down some guidelines about how we could perform in this. And so that goes out to all the companies, and then the companies do their best to make sure those protocols get seen through. And you were you had a chance to review those in advance, or or at least what the unions were making as recommendations, or whatever. So it wasn't like you just sort of dropped into the production and then got handed all this. You got it. I uh, I've been to many many meetings from the union side to sort of know what we were in for, and then San Diego started inviting me to meetings early so that I could hear the things that they were talking about and you know have my my fears elated <laughs> um, ahead of time before I showed up there. That's great. Obviously, like anything else, having some expectations, some visibility in advance so you can sort of form your own impressions and, and get your questions together so that you know what to ask and, and can get your questions addressed at the at the right time. All of that is so critical to, to success in these situations. Yeah, and it's, it's a hard time. You know, we're doing this one in Seattle. The thing that San Diego got really lucky on is that because of the beautiful weather, everything could be done outside. The rehearsals could be done outside and the performances. And that brought such a measure of safety COVID-wise because of the continual fresh air <laughs> that's being surrounding everyone at all times. You know, here in Seattle, we'll be doing something we film projects inside and we'll, we'll be taking as many safety precautions as, as we can. And it's interesting because the safest way for all of us to avoid COVID is to not leave our houses, right? And here we are, how can we try and create some art in the safest way possible while there will be some risk and trying to mitigate that risk is what's, what's really important if we want anything to happen this year, you know? In case you're interested, we did a story on some remote productions like that with a combination of outdoor and from home shooting that the public theater was doing using our, our intercom products to sort of glue together these multiple sites. So I haven't talked to the stage management staff at all that was involved in that, but uh, we did have a chance to talk to some of the technical people involved. And it seems like it was 
very creatively successful as well as a nobody got sick and b there was a strong response from the subscribers of the public so it's an interesting puzzle trying to figure out how to do all those things with different people and especially in different disciplines being in different locations but um it, it is possible apparently opera obviously brings another whole layer of complexity to that when you're talking about a live orchestra just drives that into another sphere of complexity but it is quite interesting and interesting for us as a company that's done a lot of thinking about how people can work over standard available ip networks so that it's not like somebody needs to have some sort of nasa grade complexity to their technology it's really gratifying to see that we've been able to keep people working um, yeah, it's, and it's interesting areas. One of the things, back to something you, you said earlier, is for safety is that if a single case of COVID came up, then there's a good chance that this whole production would get shut down. We don't have the time frame to be able to go back and um, wait it out, or there would have been drastic changes to the whole process. And I think everyone involved in the project recognized that and was taking as many precautions as they could outside of the workplace to be sure that this work could continue. And so that spirit of coming togetherness is really helpful in seeing these productions through. That's something that I don't think, um, at least some of the people who are will be listening to the final version of this podcast have necessarily taken into consideration is that it's not just the technical component, which is obviously impressive and cool. It's also people having to modify their lifestyle for a period of time because to prioritize keeping themselves and therefore everyone they're working with safe to allow these things to move forward. So I think that's a great point to make. Can you talk a little bit about how the tech worked for you in this setting where people were obviously placed in different relationships to each other physically and some of the other dynamics were different? I know the tech period must be intense for you under under almost any circumstances because of the shortened timelines, but I imagine this one was unique. Yeah, I, will, I always say that if the comms aren't ready by the time that you need them for the first tech rehearsal, then no work is going to get done at that rehearsal. And I give tons of kudos to Ross for his all of his help he did on the show. Everything was where we needed it to be. In general, our working aspects were not that different from usual. We had our comm channels that, that in general, I have communication with all of the departments. And then they have communication with me and amongst themselves, either to other departments or interdepartmentally, that they have all separate channels that they, that Ross helps people set up so that everyone can talk to who they need to. And that was pretty much actually like a standard opera that wasn't that different. I think the most unusual aspect from my end was the microphones on the singers because opera traditionally, although there are some exceptions, uh, we don't mic the singers and that's part of their whole training program. And it's different for them. It's, it's hard to get that quality right, that same quality of filling up a, a giant opera house that's built with those kind of acoustics. You know, how do you capture that in a microphone? And then also, how do you make the singers comfortable with the microphone? Because this is not how they were trained to sing. This is not what they're used to. So that, I think, was the biggest aspect for me. I know that there were also tons of aspects that involved the FM channel that were not that I was not involved in all for the better. And what about you communicating with your team? Was it would you normally be communicating to them over intercom, the assistant stage managers, or would it be a mixture of, in a, in a regular production, would it be more of a mixture of in-person meetings as well as comm chatter? 
as for the shows themselves, it was about the same as usual. I, I will have a common channel that goes to my assistants as well as all the, the crew members that'll have their own. And then usually, including at San Diego, there's some system of radios, which I, I usually never understand who has them and who's talking to who on them, but so they, they exist in the world. We have a whole radio pack there. And then, of course, there are meetings that happen outside of that. One of the funny things that happened on this show was that every night we would finish our tech work, everyone would pack their stuff up, go home, and then we would have a production meeting from home on Zoom, which was efficient, although not as satisfying as uh, a normal in-person meeting. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds a little weird is sort of sitting with whatever just happened for the however long it takes you to get back to your home base for the meeting. That seems strange feeling. Although I noticed on the Zoom, a couple members of the of the meetings had a glass of wine, which I don't think would be a normal thing at a, <laughs> at a production notes meeting. Depends on the company, usually not. But, you know, there was something about being comfortable in your own home that sort of enabled that. And I think I think part of that was to make up for the loss of this, I don't know, the community feeling, the celebratory feeling of coming together. That's what a production meeting really is, right? Is, is like, we don't actually all need to talk to all the other departments, but there's something about the heads of departments being there and talking about the thing that you just went through and how to move forward that is really important to all of us in the process. And I feel like the wine or the whiskey was a, you know, a substitute for that one. <laughs> So how did you feel about the creative outcome? Uh, great. I mean, we, we did socially distanced staging, um, which is extremely difficult. Katura Stikan was the director, and she came up with this whole system where it was sort of a, a memory of the main characters, So, and a lot of the props were mined so that there wasn't the passing off of props between people, which, of course, would be unsafe in rehearsal and performances. She really, really, the director really made the most out of this production. I'm incredibly impressed. And um, from a musical standpoint, uh, sort of the same thing, you know, one unusual thing they did was they had um, to reduce the orchestra size. Instead of having, let's say, eight or 16 violinists, you had one musician on each part. So the orchestra was only about 23 people, I think, Ross, um, where it would probably normally be somewhere between 55 and 65. Um, and that presented a, a new sonic environment for this piece where you're used to hearing these lush sections and instead you kind of have a bunch of solos all blending together. But I, I think, I, I, don't, I didn't get to hear it from, from the FM broadcast, but from everything I've heard, both the staging and the music were highly successful uh, given the circumstances. That's great. Certainly the reviews were very positive and, you know, I'm personally fascinated about the uh, possibility of reaching an audience that might not be normally think of themselves as able to go to an opera, you know, whether that be car load that included half kids or whatever. But to me, there's some excitement about the bringing the, in many ways, one of the most tradition filled and deeply complex performing arts practices into a very accessible environment, even under inaccessible conditions. Pretty exciting. One of the things that I found uh, was that the most interesting is that the opera looked like a rock concert between the video projections and sort of the trusses and the way the stage was built. But it was kind of, uh, kind of modeled after a rock concert in a number of ways. That's how you could make this successful. But it was an entirely different look and feel to a normal opera venue. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if that if that impacted the singers beyond just having to adapt to singing with microphones on, which is clearly a difference from what their normal practice would be. But I wonder if just the physical psychology of that impacted them at all. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I didn't talk to any of them about how it sort of felt to be up there um, on stage. Mostly, I talked to them about how cold it was and what we could do about that. <laughs> right. If I remember correctly, Mike, I think it was the the night before or the first night of tech rehearsal, something like that, that there was a highly, an intense fog that settled on the stage and sort of turned the whole mm -hmm. thing into a skating rink. And and that added a, a whole other level of complication that was a, a bit of a panic, but I think that the weather just resolved itself and thankfully that wasn't an issue. Yeah, same thing. We're lucky to be in, in San Diego where the chance of rain at that time of year is extremely low, but we did get some fog moisture that came in, which did make things interesting, but not detrimental. Another thing that I'm sure was strange for the singers, you know, very unusual and, and that you experienced too, Mike, being where you were, was at the end of a, an aria, like in the, in the most, you know, sensitive final moments of it, having 500 uh, cars honk their horns at the same time instead of applauding. What, what was that like for you being so, you know, up, up close to the stage? It was very loud um, because I was in front of the stage, um, basically where the first where the cameras were, um, which means I was sort of surrounded by the cars. There were, uh, the first cars were 10 feet to the left and 10 feet to the right. And uh, I um, I think it was really cool for the singers to experience that. It's it's a it's an interesting, different reward. But um, it was very loud from where I was sitting, and I could have done with less honking personally. But it's interesting to think about these things that you can't really imagine what it's going to be like. There's a lot of parts of, of production like this where you can sort of kind of imagine, oh, okay, so we're going to put microphones on people, and you know, some things are, are you can easily imagine. But I would, until you said that, I never would have thought of, oh yeah, people are going to honk their horns instead of clapping. So that's going to be completely different things like that. It's fascinating. It made it slightly difficult to call the next cue <laughs> until the honking was done, but it all worked out. And to your, to your point, Bob, I'll, I'll say, like, even when we had the entire production designed and planned, 3D drawings of everything, obviously extensive paperwork of the entire technical production, entrances, exits, video screens, content, all that stuff, I still also was wondering, what is it actually going to feel like to sit in a car watch this thing through a windshield either live or, or on a video screen and hear it coming through the stereo. We, we know all of those technical pieces are going to quote unquote work technically and you know everything's going to happen, but what's the experience actually going to be like? And uh, I, I was definitely pleasantly surprised at how it all came together. That's super cool. Um, any other uh, especially communications related points to bring out, Mike, from your experience calling the show? You know, it was interesting because we had the video element in this one. Of, so we had sort of one additional channel of communication. Usually it's props, carpenters, sound, and elect, uh, electrics. And uh, we had a whole fifth uh, channel in the video element of this one. And they needed their own set of communications to each other and to me. And how that all worked was not disturbing them because, of course, they're busy the entire show was an interesting element. And I think the other parts would be everything else within the orchestra, which I'm sure Ross um, Kluder has talked more about, you know, each of them needing their own separate microphone, each of them needing their own separate monitor. 
is incredibly new to us. You know, usually everyone's just in a pit and you can do all of those things together. Yeah, totally different environment for sure. And Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think normally the director wouldn't necessarily be using intercom at all, but Keturah was totally impressive with how she took to it and made use of it given the circumstances and she would have multiple channels. She could, she had a stage announced so she could talk to the singers, she could talk to the conductors, she could talk directly to her assistant to give notes and she could even talk to the lighting team to give lighting notes uh, and she seemed to do really well with that. There are older, more chromogeny directors who would not have been as happy to wear a belt pack during their dress rehearsals and during their rehearsals. She she took to that very easily. And as a as an assistant director, you tend to wear that pack so you can be the link between the director and the stage manager, for example, or the lighting designer. And because she's younger, I think she is closer to those years. She's not unfamiliar with wearing the belt pack. I imagine she's probably done it at other companies at other times. And so it wasn't as foreign to her, but thankfully she was able to to pick that right up. Yeah, that's cool. We often probably also don't want most directors to be to have access to us during the shows <laughs> or during the rehearsals. Please kindly take your notes, stop us over the god mic if you need to. But uh, I'm not sure if most people want to be hearing from the director in the middle of running a dress rehearsal if they can avoid right. it. Yeah, this is a point that we actually often make, but um, for people who are, are less familiar with the craft, I guess I should bring it out and then maybe both of you can comment on this if you've got examples that make sense. But we often talk about the fact that a well-designed intercom system makes it possible to parallelize a lot of activity during tech rehearsals. Because during those processes, the lighting team can be talking amongst itself. The stage management team can be talking amongst itself. The audio team can be talking amongst itself all during the same period of time. It is incredibly helpful, I think, for lighting more than anyone, although certainly useful for, for other departments. Lighting in general never has enough time, and because of the constraints of this show, because the show was outside, they couldn't do a lot of any real lighting during the day. The only time the lighting designer got to see the lights in the correct environment was at night during the rehearsals, and so they needed every second. I don't think the, the lighting designer, Chris Rin, stopped talking for the entire show for every rehearsal he could because he was so limited on time. and. That was facilitated by having his own channel he can work on. Yeah, my my heart definitely goes out to Chris. I'm I am glad I was not in in his situation of getting really just a tiny fraction of the time that he normally would have had. And I feel like the sound department we had the most luxurious situation because we had our virtual sound check system. So we were rehearsing with the singers and the orchestra whenever they were there. And when they were not there, we were still rehearsing and dialing in the sound and even using the virtual sound check tools to dial in monitor mixes on stage and in the orchestra stage where I could go stand downstage center and, and really dial in that mix without disrupting anyone, without you know standing in front of a uh, principal. So we, we were in good shape there. I, w one other thing that we well, to your point about paralyzing um, conversations, I think the paradox of like a, a highly functional tech process is that if you walk in and you're not on any intercom channels, you just walk into the room, you might think nothing is happening, but <laughs> there's a dozen conversations happening and the production is moving forward at breakneck speed, except it looks and sounds like nothing is happening. Yeah. But one thing that was unusual about this is there was zero PA system. There were monitors for the stage, for both stages, but no PA system at all. So the phrase God mic, like a mic that goes everywhere, was kind of a strange, you know, it wasn't truly a God mic. So I did end up 
designing just a small system for rehearsals so that if there is an emergency and Mike or someone needed to to do something, it could be uh, announced something. It could be heard by everyone, whether they were on intercom or not. But that was tied into the intercom system as well. And so I, I really like being able to tie in every part of the sound system and the intercom system together so that people that need to hear things can hear them wherever they are and whenever it needs to be heard. But then, like you said, clearing the, the air as much as possible for everyone to have their own conversations. On that note, another interesting sound thing about this is because we were in the parking lot of an arena, the dressing rooms were inside back where the locker rooms usually are. And it was uh, about a two or two and a half minute walk from the stage to the dressing rooms. And so we opted to not, usually I would have a paging microphone that I could reach, I could, I could page and announce for the singers back there. And then Ross offered me one, I believe, and I, I said we could make do without one, so not on him. But it was an interesting, because we were able to make other arrangements using my assistance to make sure everyone got to the stage on time. But it was unusual to not be able to make announcements to them in that manner. I think part of what we talked about was the fact that essentially everyone is on stage pretty quickly at the beginning of the show, and then they don't leave stage. So there weren't a lot of... Uh, entrances from the dressing rooms once the once the show got up and running every night as i remember that is correct and also at about 87 88 minutes it's i'm pretty sure the shortest opera i've also ever worked on too so there weren't many opportunities to use it and uh, we did talk about putting a show feed in the dressing rooms but then we realized what the fun thing is is because the show is on fm actually all we needed was a radio back there and everyone could hear it that's awesome i love that they saved some cabling that way yeah yeah, I guess the same goes for if anyone wanted to bootleg the show, they could just pull up next to the fence of the parking lot and tune into the right station and they could enjoy it too. Yeah, uh, that's great. Well, I've sort of gotten to the last of my questions, uh, Mike. Is there anything else that you'd like to make sure that we cover or or points or or thoughts about the show that you want to cover? No, I just, I just, I know I've said this through the broadcast, but I just want to say again that I really couldn't have been done without all the forward work from everyone on that team and everyone that they brought in. Really brought this show together in, in a wonderful way that something was able to happen in these times that not much is able to happen. And the audience responded incredibly to this. I think everyone that was able to make it to the show just really was so delighted to see an actual live performance live again. It's a thing that's hard to replicate through other means. And so it was a really great experience that I'm glad was, was able, that so many people put so much work into making happen. Hats off to, to both of you and everyone else who is involved in the production. I appreciate both of your times to talk about this and I'm very excited to have a chance to shine a spotlight on it a little bit. I think it's uh, cool to be able to tell this story and hopefully some activity from the podcast will drive people to some of the coverage that's been done because I, I feel like anything we can do to bring attention to really the drive and commitment from people to try to carry our craft forward under these circumstances, I think really it needs as much attention as we can bring to it because it really should should get extra credit for perseverance under duress. So um, really cool. Um, I, I thank both of you and um, Good luck with your next production, Mike. Thanks. Thanks. Really appreciate the opportunity to highlight this. And um, San Diego, I believe, is trying to do something like this in the spring as well. So, you know, hopefully it will be equally a success. So thanks for having us on. Thank you. And and Mike, I, I have to say, you, you said that you had some uh, concerns coming into this production. And I have to say, you 
you projected nothing but rock solid uh, confidence and and stability throughout the whole thing and and that's something that's not really quantifiable but sort of made everyone else on the production i think feel like okay this this is going to be okay someone that's at the helm of this knows what they're doing and is leading us through this with uh, quiet confidence so i i appreciate that i happy to help you know fake it till you make it <laughs> there you go Thanks for listening to this episode of Comscast Life in Full Duplex. My sincere thanks to Ross Goldman and Mike Janney for their willingness to share this unique event with us. Stay safe out there and keep communicating. Thanks for joining us on Comscast Life in Full Duplex. For more information on ClearCom and the amazing things our customers do with Intercom, find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram. Keep communicating. This podcast was recorded and edited at Bray House Studios. Music provided by Mr. Merides. I'm your announcer, Kathy Vale. Please join us for future podcasts by visiting us at clearcom.com slash blog.